Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, friends. Welcome to a special episode, episode 11 of Historical Fiction Unpacked. I don't usually release an episode on Tuesdays, but I've had so many interviews lately, and this one, I wasn't sure where I was going to fit it in because Jane Kirkpatrick's book, her latest book called Something Worth Doing, it released in September. So I didn't want to wait um, too long, but I only got to interview her today, the day before election day. And I decided because of the subject matter of her novel, that this would be a perfect episode to release on election day. So even though I had to kind of scramble to do it, I decided to just make it happen. Um, What Jane Kirkpatrick's book is something worth doing. It's a novel of an early suffragist. It's all about Abigail Scott Dunaway, who worked really hard to get women the vote in Oregon in the 1850s, all the way through the second half of the 1800s. When I say I had to scramble to get this episode ready for Election Day, um, I'm being completely serious and completely um, vulnerable with you guys because you'll you'll be able to tell we had some technological difficulties today. Um, I thought during the episode that we took care of it, but about... Uh, I won't tell you how how far in. You can just probably figure it out that my mic just decided not to be connected and and I was completely on my um, built-in microphone for my computer. You can you can hear the difference, or at least I can hear the difference so clearly. So have grace for me today because I still thought there was so much richness in what Jane had to share with us, and I didn't want to miss out on that content. Um, I thought it was worth my kind of echoey tinny sound. Um, I guess if you can pinpoint the exact minute when my mic changes to my computer's mic instead of my professional mic, um, you get a prize. No, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm not going to give you a prize because it's really easy to tell. Anyway, more about Jane. Jane Kirkpatrick is an award-winning and New York Times best-selling author of more than 30 historical novels, most based on the lives of actual historical women. A formal mental health clinic director, a consultant to a Native American Indian tribe for 18 years, and a homesteader for nearly 30 years, she divides her time between Southern California and Bend, Oregon, from which she joins us today. Jane Kirkpatrick, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Well, it's great to be here, Allison. Good. I'm glad you're here. Your latest novel, Something Worth Doing, released September 1st. Can you tell us about this book? It is based on the life of an actual historical suffragist. Her name was Abigail Scott Dunaway. And it's a story about a woman who was passionate about women's rights and the right to vote, and also about her family. And so it's a story of balancing family and passion, um, which I think is pretty relevant today. Yes. What inspired you to write this novel? Well, in Oregon, which is where I live, the state capitol has 126 names of notable people written around the chamber rooms in various places, and there are only six women. 
And one of them was Abigail Scott Dunaway. And so I wanted to know who she was and about her and what I might be able to discover uh, for contemporary women about spending time with her life. Right. That's great. Um, Now we're speaking here on the day before election day in 2020. Yes. So it seems a little um, timely, this message. What would you like to say about Abigail Scott Dunaway's role in gaining women the vote? Well, Oregon women got the vote in 1912, which was a few years before the 19th Amendment, which we're celebrating 100 years of today. Um, But Oregon had six campaigns. It was very complicated to get um, men to be able to vote on that issue. Uh, Oregon met every other year, and you had to have two legislative years in a row uh, with both houses and the governor passing. And then two years after that, you could have a vote. And so the first mm-hmm. one was in 1884, but they started in 1800 in order, or 1880 in order to get that ballot measure up for a vote. Um, and her persistence, because obviously they didn't get the vote until 1912. So right. we're talking about years and years and years. And I, I just wanted to s- try to discover where she drew her strength from. You know, where where did these women who were so passionate about something that was unusual for its time? I mean, she gave a hundred and some speeches um, and she, you know, at a time when women were not supposed to be public, they weren't, they were supposed to stay at home or work beside their husbands on their farms. Um, and she just did so many remarkable things for a woman of her time, ran a newspaper, ran a business, was a caregiver. Yeah. Um, so I just think her contribution um, is in many ways her incredible persistence and continuing ability to find and be restored to try again. Wow. So did you discover where she got her strength? I I think I did. Um, She wrote a memoir when she was in her 80s called Pathbreaking. And she described Mm. uh, one of the occasions that really kind of drew her forward um, and that was, um, she really felt it was almost a spiritual journey that unless women got the vote, she didn't see how they would ever be able to deal with the vulnerability of a woman at that time. They, um, this was the 1850s and 60s and 70s, and women didn't have control of their own income. Um, they didn't have control over debt. And their fathers or brothers or husbands might spend poorly. And if something happened to them, the, the women, the wives and daughters, or even sisters in some instances, would be held accountable for the debt. Um, they, right. they were limited in so many ways. And I think she, she really felt it was a spiritual journey that it was in, in all of our best interests that God had created women and men to be um, be able to be fully developed in their intellect and in their education and in their uh, familial lives. Um, and so I think that was the first big driver. And then the other way she drew strength, she drew strength from family. She had many sisters and one, um, one surviving brother who became this great competitor in her life because he was the editor of the big Oregonian newspaper, which is still functioning today. 
and mm. became the editor of the New Northwest, which was a women's rights um, newspaper. And actually, you can uh, go online and visit her both her speeches and um, sections of her articles that she wrote. I think she also drew strength from um, the other arts. She wrote 20 novels in her lifetime and poetry wow. and music um, and all of this while having six children. <laughs> and so right. she, had, she had one daughter and five boys, but she called them her five voters. And <laughs> she didn't refer to them as boys. <laughs> and so I, I think, um, and she had this devoted husband who um, put up with, I, I would have to say, put up with a lot of, um, of her intemperate tongue at times, um, but mm-hmm. adored her and was willing to be a house husband at a time when that was very unusual and, um, and carried yeah. back her deeply. And I, I know that that's also where she got her strength from, was from the support of her family. Yeah. It's just amazing to think how a few rights women had at that time. It, and it wasn't, it wasn't really that long ago when you look at. No, the- <laughs> I sort of tell the story that uh, this is 1967, I think it was. And I was living in Madison and uh, Wisconsin and going to the university of Wisconsin. And I wanted to get a library card from the, the public library, not just the university library. And I could not get one unless my husband came and signed for it. And oh my goodness. That was in the 60s. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. That's just so unbelievable. And women didn't weren't able to get credit on their own even in the 60s. That was when it first began. Um wow. for uh for Abigail, um she she couldn't get any credit in her name and she couldn't halt uh, some poor decisions that Ben made, some poor financial decisions that really affected their lives um, for all of all of their married life. And she kind of tried to warn him about this business decision, and he kind of blew her off and said, hey, you don't have to worry, you'll always be protected. But in mm-hmm. fact, women weren't always protected, and neither was Abigail. And that was part of the discovery and, and doing the research for this book. Right. So you mentioned that Abigail had a career and a family. Mm-hmm. Um and this was really unusual for that time. This was in the 1850s that your novel right, begins. Right. Um so what was life like for a woman trying to balance career and fam and family in that day and age? Well, it was a it was a kind of crazy balancing act like it is for many women today. Um but most of the women would work side by side on farms with their husband. But as mm-hmm. women that lived in cities had a little different experience because they stayed at home. And so the roles were pretty prescribed. Women stayed at home. They looked after the children. They looked after the house. If they were wealthy enough, they could have help. Um, and husbands went off to do their work. But farm women, agricultural women, and this may be why Wyoming was one of the first um, states to give women the vote, um, they worked beside their spouses on the farm, and, and it was hard labor. And I think a lot of the men saw that their mothers and their wives were pretty amazing and that they were equal to them in, in their efforts and that they ought to have the right to vote um, yeah. for 
for much of her life, as she ran these different businesses out of her home, a boarding house, she ran a school, she had a millinery, um, and she had to travel to do buying trips and so on. And that was where she first got connected with the women's rights organizations. Um, but but in fact, she was um, she constantly had to balance the public sentiment that she was not taking care of her family, that she wasn't because she was traveling or because she wasn't at home or because she had these other businesses. The only really businesses that were acceptable to women at that time were um, being able to run a run a millinery or a boarding house or teach. And beyond mm-hmm. that, it was just not acceptable. Um, even women who had their tried to get their own homesteads often were looked down upon because um, that wasn't that wasn't their role. So it was it was a very challenging time for women to be able to see themselves as good good parents and a good wife and still be someone who wanted to contribute to the betterment of others. Right. Yeah, and you mentioned. I mean, there are lots of there are a lot of things that have changed um, since that time. But you kind of alluded to the fact that it still is a problem for women today. I I think it is. I we certainly have come a long way, and there are women yes. in all aspects of education and economics, and you know, um, the the arts and so on, and all of the phases. Um, but it's still. Uh, one of I, I did a book group the other day, um, and a woman was telling me. She said, "You know, there's a park named um, Dunaway Park in Vancouver, Washington." And she said, "I said to myself, I wonder what what that guy did to get himself get a park named after him." And then she read my book, and she said, oh, it wasn't named after him; it was named after her. And she said it just really startled her that 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 was her mindset is that if you were going to be honored, it must be because you were a man. Um, Mm. Or she looked to her, um, to Abigail's husband rather than to Abigail. So I think there are those challenges. Um, I think women in, in the, well, I think, I don't know who said it was, you know, several years ago, but someone said that women have to, um, with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, that Ginger Rogers had to be just as good a dancer as Fred Astaire, but she had to do everything backwards and in high heels. And (sighs) I've always loved that image because, yes, women are out there in the marketplace, but I think there's a level of judgment about them that means they they have to do everything twice as good and and live with some of the guilt um, about not being as available for their children um, because they're working. And, and I don't, I don't know that men experience that same level, but I, I think there's are often there are silent, um, raised eyebrows, if you will, for a woman who is um, active and involved in the larger world as how well she's taking care of her children. Right. That's true. So I'm curious, did you have your career as a writer when you were raising your children, or did that come later? Well, I have the privilege of being a stepmom. So oh. I didn't become a mom. Um, my youngest, my, the youngest child who came to live with us was 14 at the time, which is not exactly the best time to become a parent. <laughs> <It was laughs> right. later, but, um, 
But and so I already. I apologize. I just assumed. No, that's okay. Asking. That's okay. I I had already I had a career in mental health, so I was a career woman, um, and was doing right. a mental health program when uh, when my stepson came to live with us, and it also mm-hmm. followed a, a a time of grieving because my husband's oldest son had been killed um, the year before. Oh no! Younger son came to visit with us, so you know I did carry around a sense of. Um, the guilt I carried around was, gosh, I'm I'm in mental health. I'm a director of a mental health clinic. I should be able to take care of this. I should be able to, you know, provide all the grief and um, counseling that would be necessary. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I I do think that I carried a, a load of guilt, um, and and it made me imagine what it would be like for a mom with their own children and that would, there might be a death or something happening in their family. Uh, again, that sort of um, dual role of I have to do everything. And at the same time, I, I have to give myself permission to, to be imperfect because we are and to yes. allow other people to help us move. Um, I, I sort of describe it as wilderness places. We're in them and we, we didn't realize we were going to be so, uncertain and afraid and the mark of our character is how we allow other people to help us in those wilderness places and support us and sustain us until we can find a new direction until we can find the path forward oh that's good um so i'm not sure if you mentioned this when you were talking about the novel but abigail ended up becoming the primary breadwinner for her family correct um and so you mentioned some of her um, her accomplishments. She had a um that she's written. She had written twenty books, twenty novels. Um, and she had a, a millinery and a private school out of her home, right? right? And a boarding um house mm-hmm. at, at the same time. So she they rented out, they redid the attic, um, and then they had farm things. That you know, so she sold eggs. She made butter. Um, eventually, as she became more active in um, promoting women's rights, they hired a Chinese um, cook. And again, she was criticized for that. But she said, you know, any woman, anybody who has any brains should be able to figure out how to manage a household and hire someone to help her do that. And so she defended um, women making that decision. And she said, besides, I'm I'm giving employment to someone else, and so right. she um, she she could get defensive about things like that. He also wrote an article, um, a column for her um, for this little local agricultural newspaper, and it was supposed to be somewhat anonymous. But she was so direct with her um, stories that that the family would figure out. I mean, they all figured out who it was, that it was Ben and Abigail when she was talking about her husband. And um, they would say, I don't know why we have to read in the paper that, you know, he's thinking about going into the gold fields or whatever. (laughs) And so she took some heat for being perhaps a little too uh, personal in in her articles. But at the same time, that lent authenticity to her. So other women and men could see that, she was struggling with the same things they were struggling with, and she still felt it was really important that women have some say in their destiny, and she felt the best way to do that was for women to get the vote. 
So I wanted to ask you, she accomplished all of these things while raising six children. What do you think? I mean, you talked about where she do her strength. Do you think she had some other secret to, <laughs> to accomplishing all this? I only, I have half that number of children. I have three and well, um, I can't imagine trying to do so much. <laughs> well, I heard an interview the other day and the man was talking about qualities of successful people. And he said the two, the two critical ones were that people um, who were successful had a purpose, that they were, they were um, purposeful. I mean, that they had a passion. And um, I think it was C.S. Lewis was talking one time about, there's a German word, which I can't pronounce, but it means this passion for something that's almost... Um, I mean, it's almost like it's visceral. It's like you cannot not do this, whether it's writing or whether it's, you know, trying to, you know, make, you know, make the perfect, you know, make the business work or, you know, whatever it might be, but it's very purposeful and, and yeah. drives them. And the second quality was discipline. And I was mm-hmm. really struck by that because uh, she was very disciplined about uh, her efforts towards women's rights. Um, she was less disciplined, like her writing was uh, often kind of, uh, she got bad reviews. Um, her brother wouldn't publish some of her articles in the Oregonian because he said they were sloppy and she didn't have proper grammar. And she eventually got her sister worked with her on the newspaper and her sister was a much better editor and grammarian. And so she helped clean up some of um, Abigail's work but but her discipline was, um, and she would forget things, you know, she would forget to pick something up that, you know, Ben wanted her to pick up or whatever. So she wasn't disciplined in kind of everyday things, but she was definitely disciplined about the work that needed to be done in order to um, allow women to have the vote. And one of the example of that is that during that time, there were lots of different um, modes of um, support and and there were parades and sometimes people would get involved in um, prohibition and women would go in and you know take over saloons and break bottles and do all that kind of stuff and she absolutely did not want that um, to be mm-hmm. part of her campaign and she called her campaign the still hunt and she felt that she wanted to continue to build a woman's reputation and expand the reputation and not have to defend what she called inappropriate um, activities as an activist. But, and and some would say that over the 40 years of her work, that maybe she could have made a few changes, but in fact, um, she, she was so disciplined about the way to make this happen that would improve all people's lives is that the men needed to be comfortable with the idea that women were able to make good decisions that um, and she felt that that would happen by one-on-one by meeting with um, couples by meeting with legislators by traveling and giving speeches that were well they had lots of evidence and lots of storytelling that gave people a way to relate to what she was talking about and why it was important so I think those two things um, are what you know, for, for women today, that that's probably 
the, the two magic <laughs> potions um, is to have that purpose. And, and for her, she felt it was actually a divine purpose. Um, and then also to apply discipline and that, that right. that'll, that's what can keep us going even in the hard times. Mm, great advice. So I've read the first eight chapters of the book and um, I can sympathize with <laughs> Abigail, especially when you think about just the way, I mean, it's clear in the story how women were treated so differently from men. Um, but then I also, I've read varying opinions about kind of her personality and you even mentioned that she was, um, you know, she had kind of a sharp tongue. Yes. Yeah. Um, so as you were writing her story, how did you feel about your main character? Well, I remember, um, listening to a lecture by Joyce Carol Oates a number of years ago at the festival of faith and writing back in Michigan, um, mm-hmm. And she said three things make up a great story. And the first one is you have to feel empathy for the character. And the mm-hmm. second thing is that it should give voice to voices that are seldom heard. And the third thing is that it should uh, memorialize. It should be a story worth remembering. And so um, all of the research that I did on Abigail, you know, there were comments about, you know, maybe Oregon had six campaigns where no other state had that many because of Abigail, that she was, yes, she was a great charter, you know, driver for this campaigns, but she also was rigid and she could be um, stubborn. And, um, and she would, if, if she thought she was being attacked, she'd get pretty defensive and had a sharp tongue. Um, and, but I wanted people to like her. And so part of when I started um, writing, I, I wanted to expose more of her vulnerabilities um, than necessarily her strengths, but that, in fact, what she accomplished came out of those vulnerabilities, the, the fact that her mom died on the journey west and that her mother had said to her when she was about 10 or 12 how sorry she was that she was a girl because girls mm. had such a hard time. And, um, and this was a woman who had a happy marriage, you know, but she understood that this Abigail didn't get to go to school and the, and the, her brothers did. And so there are these vulnerabilities and that's what I, that's what I hoped people would come to see about her and maybe even see greater strength because of those vulnerabilities. She still persisted and followed this thread that really mattered through her life. Um, so yes, I, I I liked her, but I also um, since I you know I have a husband. I don't know that I mentioned this to you, but my husband has a number of disabilities as well, and is is just a great supporter of my life, my writing life. Um, but hmm. that sort of um, demand of a as a caregiver, not just as a parent, but as someone who is also caring, and, and in our culture, we have lots of. You know, my neighbor um, has kids at home and she also has her parents in an assisted living facility. And so she's chronically moving between these different um, relationships and and as well as taking care of her own you know, marriage. And I think that that happens for a lot of women today. And that vulnerability, again, to me, is part of what I want to explore when I'm when I'm writing about these historical women, especially they're known because they did something notable. Um, but I want to really 
think more about how they felt while that was happening and what some of their struggles are and how they might be able to step from their generation to ours um, and teach us things about their lives that we can use today. Right. So can you tell me about your research process for this book? Well, my research is sort of, um, I start by reading every single thing I can find about the person, you know, uh, other um, other biographies, for example, because this is a novel. It's, you know, a biography is tells us what someone did and when they did it. And the novel lets you explore uh, how they felt and what their motivation might have been. And so... But I I try to read everything that other people have written. Um, There was tons, there were tons of documents at the University of um, Oregon Library and the Oregon Historical Society. I could see her traveling typewriter. I could um, see copies of her suffrage hymn that she wrote. Um, I I got a note after the book came out from someone, uh, her house in one of the little towns of Lafayette where they lived, their house has been, is kind of on the historic register. And this woman wrote to tell me that she and her husband got married at that house. Uh, so there were lots of little things like that. And then I use census records to try to find out who else was living around them. I read a lot of local history uh, about the time, you know, the kinds of economic struggles. Um, She lived during the time of uh, the Civil War and the assassination Mm -hmm. of Lincoln. Um, So I'm reading about the context. And then there's a site which probably people who are interested in genealogy know about called um, Find a Grave. And what I love about Find a Grave is that um, if someone is on there, you can click on their siblings and then get the extended story about the siblings and who they married and, you know, those things mm. in their life. Um, but one of them, and the, and Abigail had um, a quite an extensive find a grave file. And there was a name that was um, frequently mentioned. Uh, his name was Bob Speckram. And he was loading up photographs. They'd, there'd be a photographs and it'd say, you know, that he had provided that. So I contacted him and it turns out that he is a he was a descendant of one of Abigail's sisters. And he and his wife invited my husband and I to their home in Salem, Oregon. And it and it was like a museum. He had these incredible documents and letters, family letters and um wow. and just and and he he had photographs and he gave me a thumb drive, you know, of all of this material. Um, a letter of her father with tear stains on it for where he had um, had to um, farm out one of his youngest girls to live with one of his, um, one of the older sisters because of, again, some social issues of that time where um, his, his second wife, it turned out that she was pregnant at the time that they married and, and that right. was, you know, difficult thing. And so the girls were their reputation would be at risk. And so they had to all either get married or, or live with a married sibling. Um, Mm. So he had, he had all this wonderful documentation. um, And, and then I was able to locate the website with her speeches and speak with the professor at um, USC in California, who was passionate about Abigail Scott Dunaway. And, um, and so he had, been preserving this 
um, website of her speeches. And that was terrific to be able to access um, those and, and sort of see the mindset and how she, how she looked at the world. Um, so that was another research aspect that was just a gift because somebody else was really passionate about her. So it was, right. it's that kind of linkage of putting pieces together. It's like making a quilt. And by the way, she was not a great quilter. <laughs> so she commented on that one time. So. so interesting, all the knowledge that you were able to learn about her. Well, it's sorting through because, you know, people did their doctoral dissertations about her, but I think mm -hmm. the only, um, the only novel I'm aware of that was written about her, but there are, um, there's a great um, book about her journey uh, when she got Susan B. Anthony to come West. And in 1871, they toured the Northwest and did lectures and Abigail uh, organized all these events and kept notes and so on. So, um, and, and they, one of the stories from that, which I just loved was that they were at the Oregon state fair and they camped out in a tent and, mm. and, Ab and Susan B. Anthony had never slept out like that. And she said wow. that she was felt like she was being in a can of sardines because all the kids were there. Her, you know, six kids were there. Ben was there. They had, you know, the kids were married and their husbands were there. And so <laughs> yeah, let's put it that way. It's a big tip. Wow. Yeah. So Jane, you are a New York times bestselling author of more than 30 historical novels. Um, but, and you mentioned you had a career in mental health before. Right. So have you always wanted to be a writer? Have you always written on the side? How did you get started down this career path? I always liked words um, and I liked, you know, how they sounded and I thought they were funny. And I can remember as a kid, we lived on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and, um, and I asked my sister what these little fluttering things were at kind of a mud hole. And she said they were butterflies. And I thought that was so funny because I knew what butter was. We had a dairy and I knew what flies were. We had cows. <laughs> I didn't. I couldn't figure out why they would have called that little fluttering thing a butterfly. And I, that was just a really early memory of being intrigued by words and, and yeah. Other. And so I didn't. I wrote poetry when I was younger, um, and I had teachers who would be very kind and said that I wrote. I wrote in an interesting way, as some of them put it. Um, and but it. It really, um, when I became the director of the mental health program, I had to do mostly administrative writing, and I would write to legislators and uh, administrators about concerns about the clinic that I uh, was in charge of, and often they would call me and say, you know, that letter really touched me, and so I knew that words had power, and uh, mm -hmm. I didn't really think about writing as a, um, as a novelist or um, until years later when my husband and I made a decision to leave our jobs and to move what I called to Rattlesnake and Rock Ranch. It was 160 very remote acres, seven miles from our mailbox and 11 miles from a paved road. And, um, and we built a life there. And once we got electricity, I would write to family and friends who thought that we had lost our mind by doing this, and, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, and 
one of our friends wrote back and said, when we get your letters, we don't read them right away. We wait until after supper and we turn off the TV and then we read them out loud because they're like a chapter in a book. And that was for me the beginning of, well, maybe I could write a book about, um, about our decision to leave suburbia and make this major life change and, and what we hoped might happen from that and, and how, you know, what that, what that passion was. And so that became my first book, which was a memoir called Homestead. And then Mm. after that, um, I, I found a woman, a, a historical woman I was really intrigued with who 150 years before me, she and her husband, um, they had the same age difference, 16 years before, between she and her husband, they, he was a builder and that's what my husband had been. And, um, they were trying to build a life in a very remote river, which is what we were doing. And they were successful because they worked with a, a a local Indian tribe. And it happened that I was working um, for that same uh, the Waska Warm Springs and Paiute people. And so I wanted to tell her story as a biography, but I couldn't find enough material. I could find things about her husband, her brother, her father. And if she'd had sons, I know I could have found things about them, but I couldn't find anything about her. And and then I came across a quote from Virginia Woolf that said, women's history must be invented, both uncovered and made up. And that gave me permission to sort of step into an unknown world and and try being a novelist. And I was most fortunate in having a wonderful editor at um, at Multnomah um, Publishing. And and that began my novelist career, which is still ongoing. So wonderful. We survived the homestead for 27 years, too, before we... Um, moved back to where we live now in Bend um, because my husband's health. We just it was just too remote, and and mm. the road was a dirt road. Um, you know, it was eleven miles of gravel, and the last part was basically dirt. And there was a sixteen percent grade, which is as steep as a cow's face, is what I always said. <laughs> and so, wow, um, I didn't want to go through another winter like that, and so. We yeah. left in 2010, but we were there close to 30 years. It was an, an incredible, incredible journey. Wow, that's amazing. Yes. Um, so what are you writing now? I am, uh, I just heard from my editor this morning. I'm so happy to say she's happy. So I have some revisions to do, but they're not, um, they're not super major. Um, and so I'm working on it. It's a story called The Healing of Natalie Curtis. And Natalie Curtis was a, a very uh, a musical prodigy, and the days or so before she was to have her debut um, in Carnegie Hall, she had basically kind of a nervous breakdown, and um, she lost her love for music and her sense of music. Her brother, who had gone to the West, said, uh, "Come west, and you know." start to feel better. And in the process, mm-hmm. I think between the landscape and her discovery of Indian music, um, her life transformed as she did everything she could to preserve um, the Indian music that was being um, lost and desecrated because of the assimilation um, policies of the federal government. 
And she actually worked with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was president at the time, to be able to lessen some of those um, demands that Indian people not use their language or sing their songs or dance their dances. And she um, she literally wrote a, a book called the Indians um, the Indians book, and uh, it's like five hundred and some pages. But she recorded music from over eighteen different tribes in the West that they might be that that might music might be preserved. So that's it's not my pitch line, but it's the storyline. And I just was so struck with her her passion and her discipline in being able to to do the work of her heart in a different way. She still was a musical prodigy, but it was in a different setting. Oh, that's so interesting. When I first heard about her, I just thought, wow. And that's always part of my writing process is there's an, always an unanswered question. It's like, well, how did that happen? You know, how right. did it happen that this white woman became so engaged and, and made such a difference in the lives of um, Indian people? And, um, you know, it brought, it brought back some great um, experiences of the Indian people teaching me things. Um, certainly more than I taught any of them, but um, in the work that I did for 17 years with that, the local tribe. Mm. Do you want to share any more about the work you did? Um, well, I was working, um, I helped develop a program called Early Intervention, which so my, my life and the reservation was working uh, with families of children with disabilities. And, and it was a, mm. an extraordinary time for me. It, it, um, it met, I would say it met my need to be constantly learning new things and to realize that the way I see the world is not necessarily the way everybody else sees the world. And um, I, I just, have, it was a very um, gracious time for me to be there. My parents, uh, when they became ill and needed care, um, they were the first non-Indians to come to the reservation and um, be a part of the assisted living facility there. So I, my my life really became uh, connected. Both of them passed away there on the reservation. So mm. it was um, a really important time in my life, and um, and I've been very grateful for that. And so I I I could resonate to some extent with Natalie's healing um, by her interaction, hers through music, and I would say mine through um, through again mental health and and continuing to work with families. I think it makes the novel stronger when we can put our own experience into it in some way. I hope so. I think, I, I think it's really hard not to as a writer because yes. we write out of our experiences. And so I know somebody said, you know, you should write what you know, but at the same time, you need to know what you don't know by writing, <laughs> you know, to discover what right. you know by writing. So, yeah, that's true. Um, so I like to ask all of the authors who come on my show this question. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think for me, I prefer uh, historical novels because in some ways um, they bypass the part of us that can put up blinders because we live in this present time. And, and so we're, I think we're better able to go into that historical time 
um, accept the author's view of this is this is the world I've created for the reader, um, and to actually then try to live inside that world, and as a result of that allow ourselves to get some learnings that perhaps we might not find in a contemporary novel because we've, we've put up blinders. So mm. I, I think that there's something in the strength of history that, um, that gives us an opportunity to, to decide whether we're going to repeat some of the same mistakes um, or to at least look at how this character, how this person solved a problem or how they made their heart their work harder because of the choices that they made and then we have the privilege really of taking that learning and saying well am I going to do that or should I do something different at least for me I think one of the one of the questions I ask myself before I start writing is how do I hope a reader might be changed by reading this story and mm. that always kind of gives me some sort of a direction for um and 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 then the other thing that happens for me is i i think oh this is what this story is about and then by the time i finish that first draft i i have to sit back and go oh that's why i was supposed to write this book Uh, wow so i i learned something that i otherwise wouldn't have learned which is what i tell people who who write to me and say you should write the story of my great aunt. She was the first, you know, whatever. And I would say to them, no, you should write that story because you're the keeper of it. Um, and and I'd learn something about myself. I otherwise never would have learned, but I wouldn't learn what you would learn because it's your story and something about that story has, has got you and won't let you go. Right. Surrender to the story. I guess that's, that's part of why I think historical novels are so critical is that we can surrender to that story sometimes more easily than a a story set in our present time where we all have our own experiences of Starbucks or we all have our own experiences of, you know, now during COVID, our whole COVID experience. But I, in some ways, I think reading about the 1918 pandemic can give us great insights about our current pandemic um, that we, you know, that we might not necessarily find except by reading what people, um, how people endured during that earlier time. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we have, we don't have the same defenses built up when we go to a historical novel. Correct. As when we look at our present time. Right. So Jane, it was great talking with you today. How can listeners purchase your newest book. Well, hopefully they can go to their favorite local bookstore and um, they can visit my website, which is jkbooks.com and order it there. But I, I encourage people to, to support their local bookstores, their favorite store, and it might have to be ordered in, but that's okay. Right. We have time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's the best place to find you online? Um, I have a, a Facebook page, Jane, Kirkpat- Jane Kirkpatrick author, um, and I also have a just a general Facebook. I, I'm on Twitter, but I don't use it very much. I, I also have an Instagram account, um, but, but people frequently find me. I, I encourage them to sign up for my newsletter, which is called Story Sparks, and it's an e-newsletter that comes out once, um, once a month, sometime, sometimes sometimes 
less than that, but um, but it's a way that I can continue to connect to readers and hopefully encourage them, especially in a time of trial. Right. Where do they sign up for that? Mm-hmm. Is it on your website? Yeah, to jkbooks.com. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Allison. I really appreciate it. So friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jane Kirkpatrick. Her book is Something Worth Doing, and it is available now. Um, Full disclosure, after our discussion about women balancing a career and a family, I neglected my children in order to bring you this episode today. Um, And I felt guilty about it too. Just wanted to demonstrate Jane's point. Okay, I didn't technically neglect them. They are being cared for. And moving right along to the next topic. This is just a reminder to check out the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. Allison is with one L, that's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash blog. There you can find the show notes for all of my recent episodes. And... There will be links to um, places to buy Jane's book and other things we discussed. As always, if you enjoyed this episode of Historical Fiction Unpacked, please subscribe to the podcast in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Um, But also, please leave a star rating and review that helps other people find the podcast. Um, don't worry, we're going to have another episode this week. It's really unusual week. We have two episodes releasing and there will be our usual episode releasing on Thursday. That will be with Amy Lynn Green. I talked to her a few weeks ago and we had a super fun conversation about Amy's new book. So, um, and that book actually releases today. It's called Things We Didn't Say. So make sure you tune in on Thursday to hear that episode with Amy Lynn Green. Um, I'm going to leave you with a quote that I love by Elizabeth Blackwell. She said, I do not wish to give women a first place, still less a second one, but the complete freedom to take their true place, whatever it may be. So ladies and gentlemen, take advantage of that freedom. Get out and vote today. Ladies, be grateful you've had that freedom for 100 years now. And after you're finished voting, pick up a book and read some more historical fiction. 